Welcome again, everybody. Uh, my name is Ben Kearns. I'm one of the pastors here. And one of the things I love the most are movies. And uh, this summer, there's going to be this incredible movie called Oppenheimer that's coming out. And uh, it's about the creation of the atomic bomb. And as a child of the 80s, uh, I feel all the feels about it. And on one hand, I'm super mesmerized by it. Like I like explosions. Um, on the other hand, I'm horrified by what in the world uh, creating an atomic bomb meant for world history. And I mean, I remember being a kid in the 80s being terrified, like the, when the atomic bomb comes, what is my family gonna do? And, uh, and it turns out that since the, you know, right after World War II, up until I guess the 80s, right? We've, that was a very real fear. And with that very real fear, people have a whole bunch of different ways that they can interact with that, right? Most of us just live with anxiety like, this would be bad, and I hope it doesn't happen. Now, thankfully, when I was in elementary school, they said, hey, if this happens, climb under a, t a desk and you'll be fine. And so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm set, right? So there was like, so most of us just live with anxiety of this is going to be awful. And then on the other ends of the bell curve are the people who are like, if we're all going to die in nuclear holocaust, I don't need to pay my credit cards. I can do whatever I want. I live for today. And they lived wild. And the poor people, like now they have to deal with all that, right? So those people like fully like freaked out. And then on this end of the bell curve, there were the preppers, right? The original preppers who are like, you know what? I'm going to dig a hole in my backyard and I'm going to build a bomb shelter. And that's what they did. They dug holes in their backyards. They built bomb shelters. And in fact, in 1951, our government sent out brochures to people and said, here's how to build your family fallout shelter. For a mere $150, you can begin to put all the supplies and things that you need so that you can survive the worst case uh, ever event. And, um, and what's interesting is by 1962, the very peak of the of the stress and anxiety around all this with the, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was millions and millions of fallout shelters everywhere, right? That, that was a very real thing that, that this impending doom was happening. And this small grouping of people said, you know what? They're going to live by faith, right? That's what they're going to do. They're, they're, this thing's going to happen and we're going to be prepared. And we don't care if people make fun of us. This is how we're going to live. The rest of us lived with anxiety and said, we sure hope they're wrong. And if they're right, then Hopefully it'll be over fast for us. And then the people who lived wild, they lived wild, right? Well, the reason why I bring this up is because, I mean, being a prepper, it's weird. It's a weird subculture. Back then, I mean, this look how beautiful this family is. They seem super normal. The preppers now are, are a little unique, you know? And I found myself on this like prepper TikTok channel and I'm like, whoa, this guy is fascinating, you know? And so I find myself, I'm in the middle of like, do I want to be a prepper when the zombie apocalypse happens? Do I, and you know, I don't want to live wildly because I need to keep my job and I don't want to be a weirdo prepper. So I kind of Live with this anxiety. So the way I've managed this is I'm, I said, you know what? I'm just going to know two preppers. And if the, you know, if the things fall out, I'm going to their house. And, uh, but if not, I'm going to live the normal life. Well, the reason why I bring that up is because we're going to uh, look at this morning, the original prepper, Noah, right? We're, we're, re we're going through uh, Hebrews chapter 11, these heroes of faith, and the original prepper was Noah, right? He, the, the world was going to hell in a handbasket. It was like, like we think, though, the world's bad now. Imagine no Western civilization. Imagine no rules, no ethics, no morals, total chaos. And imagine the worst version of that. And that was the world in which Noah lived. And God saw Noah and said, hey, um, I'm going to wipe out the world, which we're going to talk about in a second. And, uh, but I want you to build this ark. And him and his family by themselves you know, for hundreds of years building this ark. And imagine how weird that would be for this person by faith to say yes to this thing, to build an ark while the whole rest of the world is being like, are you weird? Are you crazy? Should we be preparing? Should we not be preparing? So that's where we're going to find ourselves right now. So if you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll start at the very beginning. It says this, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. 
It's this confidence that we're going to listen and do the thing that God called us to do, even though we have, don't have any data points in front of us. We, our data point is God and God's character. But right now, it doesn't make sense to build this giant boat when you're in the middle of Mesopotamia, right? And you're in the middle of the desert, you're building this giant boat, and everyone's just mocking you. But by faith, this is what the ancients did, and Noah did it in his way. So verse 7 says this, By faith, Noah, when warned about the things yet not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. It's wild. We just had vacation Bible school. They didn't do this verse for vacation Bible school. I don't understand. Um, By his faith, he condemned the world. How in the world does that work, right? With our posture that God is loving and gracious and merciful. And what's interesting, when you read the Bible um, that has color on every page, and you look at the notes, you realize Noah didn't condemn the world. The world was condemned, right? The world, this, this awful thing was going to happen. And by Noah proving that he was right, the rest of the world, like imagine, right? As the big floodgates are going, you're like, oh, Noah was right, you know? But what's interesting, even that explanation still didn't get me there. I spent all week thinking like, there's got to be more. Like, why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Why would God condemn the world? It does not make sense. And I realized because I'm living in this stream of 2,000 years of Western civilization where my entire worldview has been shaped by the cardinal virtues, by the, the virtues of Christ. And while our civilization may not have done it well, we live in a totally different mental frame. The ancient people understood the world so much differently than we did. And so I just want to give a quick little historical uh, framing and a theological framing that I think will help us understand what in the world is going on. You see, for ancient people, for people in the prehistoric world trying to understand how the world worked, no one understood how the world worked. And so the best people came up with is that there were these gods in the heavens and they just rained down chaos on the earth. And for almost every ancient story, the picture is basically that God hates humans. Like that's the picture. God hates humans. We're annoying. We're like, we're like flies that they pluck the wings off of. That's kind of the posture that the gods are. In every ancient culture, that is how it is. That's the case. And what's wild is in ancient Mesopotamia, all over that region, there are all of these flood stories. The Sumerians have one. The Egyptians have one. Um, the Babylonians have one. They all have this, this narrative that there was this gigantic flood that wiped out the world. And when you were in high school, you probably read the, uh, the story of uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, or at least you heard of it. And that was like the original story. It's the most ancient story. And in that story is a picture, is a story of the actual flood account. I always forget this guy's name, but instead of Noah, it's Utnapishtim. Utnapishtim. I brought that note still. I don't even know if that's right. But Utnapishtim is the character who uh, Gilgamesh comes and encounters. Because Gilgamesh is trying to meet with all the gods, trying to figure out how to, how to have an immortal life. He meets Utnapishtim, and Utnapishtim survived this giant flood. And he tells the story that basically the gods hated humans. They hate them because they were so loud. That's the best part. Like the, the gods are just in the, in the sky living their best life, and these humans are just so loud. Apparently, all the death and destruction and murdering was just, you know, messing up their, excuse me, messing up their sleep. And so God's going to wipe out all the earth, and the, one of the lesser gods goes up to Noah and says, hey, earth's about to be wiped out, but why don't we do, come up with this devious plan, and you build a raft, and all the animals will get on this raft, and we will save humanity, because this one lesser god actually liked humanity. And so... Uh, so this God wipes out the whole world. Utnapishtim survives and realizes that he was outplayed by this human. And he's so mad. And so he goes, well, fine, you get eternal life, I guess. And then they have like this weird little ancient riff or whatever. But what's fascinating about that whole story is that is the posture. The ancients understood God to hate humans. 
And at best, humans can find a devious way to outsmart the gods. That's basically what we could do at our best. Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh is from Mesopotamia. And in the southern part of Mesopotamia is this region called um, Chaldea. Now, for you Bible nerds out there, who is from Chaldea? You hear first gathering, but thanks, Randy. But you say both <laughs> gatherings. Good job. That's right. If you remember in Genesis, Abraham, he's from Ur of the Chaldeans. Randy, we'd be smoked without you. So thank you. Right. So Abraham is from Ur. And so Abraham, as a child, you know, the nursery rhymes that they sung about, the stories that they sung about were about Gilgamesh and about the angry gods who wiped out the earth. So he knew a flood story from the time he was a child. Everyone, that was the story. They sit around the campfire. There's no TikTok. They have like five stories. There's, those are stories they're telling. And yet God picks Abraham and says, you are going to be my man. Out of you, I'm going to create a whole people. And out of you, I'm going to reveal that who God, Yahweh, the one true God really is. Not this weird way that you've crafted this pantheon of gods. That's not the real gods. I, Yahweh, am the real God. And I'm going to begin to reveal myself to you little bit by little bit. And so the way that you understand the flood story is not that God hated humans, but God hates sin. God hates death and destruction. He created humans because he loves humans. He wants to be in relationship with humans. And then humans at their worst cause so much death and destruction just breaks God's heart. And Noah, out of his righteousness... God's like, I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to begin to craft a new plan for salvation. And so for us, we think, why in the world would God do that? But for the ancients, the the flood happened. This, This catastrophic event happened. And this is actually a redemption story because God is telling Abraham and Isaac and Jacob down to Moses to say, this is actually what this story means. This story of of Noah acting in faith was part of his salvation plan. So that's the historical context. I think there's a helpful theological context as well, because the way that God revealed it, you don't just start from zero and get all the things that you know about God. Basically for 4,000 years, God's been revealing more and more and more about who he is until he ultimately reveals that in Jesus. And so it's just like with little kids, when you have a four-year-old and you're trying to parent them, you don't sit them down and reason with them and say, let me tell you about all the reasons why you shouldn't eat ice cream before you, know, before you eat your meal. Let me tell you about calories and fat and glucose and cholesterol. And, and let me tell you about what your life's going to be like when you're 70 and you want to make sure you're fit. By. Like, you don't say that to a four-year-old. You say, you don't get ice cream. And if you behave yourself, you can get ice cream at the end. If you don't, you get to be in a timeout, right? We do carrots and sticks because our four-year-olds, that's how we frame the world. And it works for four-year-olds. But as you get older, you need to move past carrots and sticks and carrots and sticks. And when you read through the scriptures, the very beginning stories of of God trying to explain who he is, he's trying to explain that he's a God who is this parent who loves his people. And if you follow him, you'll be blessed. And if you, man, if you mess up, you're going to get punished. And that makes sense for little kids. And as the story progresses, right, and you get to the prophets, God's like, but that's not my dream for humanity. My dream for humanity is that I put my law in your heart. And that you be people who are devoted in your heart towards me. That's my dream. And the prophet Joel begins to paint that picture. And ultimately, Jesus comes and teaches us how to truly live and gives us the Holy Spirit for us to now live in a world without carrots and sticks. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. He says this, Before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian. So this law, the covenant, the way God was expressing himself, we're locked up, we are fenced in. God was trying to explain to this broken pagan world what what who he was and how he longed for us to live. And he was carrots and sticks and carrots and sticks. And then finally he said, 
but the law was your guardian until Christ. And then until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so the story of Noah is this ancient, ancient story that was a version of redemption. And so for us, we can't look through it through our 20th century eyes and go, what in the world? We have to kind of understand what it meant for the ancients and how they heard it. And we look at it through the lens of Christ, which means that what in the world was God doing? And there's something that God was doing through Noah that he's being commended for that I think we should be commended for, or at least try to be commended for as well. And these are the three simple things. One is that Noah was righteous. He was a righteous person. He was holy. He was set apart. He lived differently from the world around him. And because he lived differently from the world around him and because he was holy and set apart, he could actually listen and hear the voice of God. And because he could hear the voice of God, God asked him to do something and he obeyed. And we're going to find out that when we obey, the kingdom of God advances in mighty, mighty ways. Back then it was for devastation, but for us, it's for salvation. So let's take a quick look at Noah's story here. So this is Genesis chapter six. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people of his time and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless among the people. Like I said, this was a pagan culture. No one ever heard of God. No one ever heard of morality. No one ever heard of kindness. This was a, the ultimate dog eat dog survival of the fittest culture. And Noah lived a set apart life. And what that exactly looks like, we don't know. But what we know through the testimony of scripture is that righteousness and holiness is what we're called to do. God longs for his people. Like in first Peter says that we are to be holy because God's holy. We do this because we are to be imitators of God. We're to be separate and set apart as people of God. And the Jewish people, this was God's law. Their whole law was so that they would be set apart people. All the foods that they could eat and couldn't eat, the clothes that they could wear, all the rituals, all the traditions, they were all given so that this grouping of people in the midst of all this pagan chaos, death and destruction, they lived separate and said, this is a separate way you're going to live because God is other. God is holy and I want you to be a holy person. And even before the law, Noah intuitively in his heart knew that and lived that way. Now, what's interesting is we're called to be righteous people, but we immediately turn into self-righteous people. It's this brutal thing. Whenever we try hard to be good, we immediately have a nose for all the failures out there, right? Whenever I'm like the most intense in my diet, I've never been more judgy about people who eat Costco pizza. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? Do you know what is in a Costco pizza? But on a normal day, I love Costco pizza with one of those chicken things and then ice cream, the whole bit. And I eat it all by myself in my car, right? But when I'm trying to be righteous, I judge, right? Like it's this weird thing. And so this is the tension. We want, we're called to be righteous, but not self-righteous. And so the first thing we need to do is if we want to be people like Noah, then we need to be people who are living a set apart life. That there actually is a moral code there are things that we're supposed to say yes to. There are things that we're supposed to say no to. There's characteristics and qualities that we're supposed to lean into. We are supposed to be imitators of Christ. We're supposed to be clothed with Christ. Christian, the very word Christian is that we're little Christ. We're Christ imitators. And so Noah was commended for his righteousness. And how awesome. Before the law, before the Torah, before anything, just because God had a special hand of blessing on Noah, he learned to live this way and he was commended because he lived in this way. So if we want to have a faith like Noah, we need to be people who are righteous and set apart. It goes on to say in verse six, chapter six, verse 11, so now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how, saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth and corrupted their ways. 
So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all these people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside it out. And it goes on and on and on and on about how to build this thing. Now, like I'm going to say a little bit later, what God was doing and what God longed to do was very different in that ancient time, in that ancient world. And Noah's obedience brought around about destruction for those people. But we're going to find out through Christ, even if however you frame that in your world, post-Christ, we cannot live in that way at all because what Christ chose to do in our obedience is something totally different. So just hold your horses before you write me an email. But this is the part I want to make sure that you understand. Because of Noah's faith, he was able to hear the voice of God. Because he was righteous, he could actually hear. And like, while God has never spoken to me like he's spoken to Noah, he's never said, Ben, do this. I wish he did. That would be so great. But I do know that the closer I am walking with God, the more that I'm trying to long and lean into holiness and righteousness. And I have these disciplines in my place so that I can become more and more like him. When I, when I find myself more and more like Christ, I actually can sense what God's doing both in me and around me and where God longs for me to be. It's, it's incredible. And it is, it's a discipline to get there. I've, uh, I've recently gotten into stargazing because I guess as you get older, you just have to slow down a little bit. This is my leaning into that season of my life. And what's interesting is you go outside tonight at 10 o'clock and you look up in the sky and you can maybe see a planet or two. You can see Orion, maybe some of the, the Big Dipper. And that's kind of it, right? Because of all the light pollution. Because we live in, we're in a populated area. But when you go out into the Sierras, you go backpacking and you look up in the sky and you can see so many stars. It is incredible that all those stars are there all the time. And we miss it because our, our, our lens, our, the way we see is so clouded with so much distraction. And when we actually slow down and we get away from all that pollution and we look up in the sky, we begin to see the most incredible picture of the heavens. And then the longer you do it, your eyes adjust and you can see deeper and further into the heavens. And if you are patient long enough, you can actually see galaxies and you can see satellites and you can see all sorts of incredible beauty of the sky around you. But that's the thing. We have to get rid of the pollution first. We have to be willing to look in the right direction and we have to be willing to be patient and lean in. And when we do those things, we begin to see and hear the voice of God. And we begin to listen to what God has for us and what God's called us to do. And so what has God called us to do? Now, God told Noah exactly what to do. God called Courtney exactly what to do. That's great. The rest of us are in this little middle ground. Sometimes he has something very specific for us to do. But what I do know is what God has called us to do fits within a very uh, sure bucket. And that very sure bucket is that when we obey the voice of God, God brings about his kingdom, which is full of grace and mercy and salvation. And so while we see this in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that Noah's faith, uh, by his faith, he condemned the world. That was for a very spe specific moment. What we're going to see is that obedience ushers in the kingdom of God. And Jesus did something mind-blowing. Jesus did something mind-blowing that we are invited into. So you see, Jesus was the holiest of all people. He was God's son. He was without sin. He was righteous and perfect and pure. And everyone was worried if you got too close to Jesus, Jesus would become impure. And then that, what would that mean? And so everyone tried to protect Jesus from impure things. But Jesus, who was the full embodiment of God, which was righteous and pure and holy, what did we find Jesus doing? Jesus found himself in the middle 
of all of the, the mix of death and destruction and brokenness and sin and chaos. He found himself in the middle of all of it. And so we see in, in, in Matthew, uh, in the book of Matthew, Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, right? Matthew's a tax collector. If you were a tax collector, you were the worst of the worst. The Romans were awful because they were oppressors. People who had normal sin, they're pretty bad. But if you were a Jewish people who partnered with the oppressors, you were the worst of the worst. And Jesus sees Matthew, sees him like in his guts and says, you are my guy. I want you to follow me. And what I love about Matthew, before he gets all cleaned up, before he understands all the rules of the game, he just goes, great. I get to be one of your people. I'm going to invite my friends over because I want my friends to meet you. And he throws this huge party for all of his dirtball friends. And Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up to this party and Jesus didn't rage with them. Everyone thinks, oh, Jesus went to the party. He didn't rage with them. He brought his full, righteous, holy self to the party and brought redemption and salvation and hope to them. And he ends up, and, and the Pharisees have this big pushback with him, but this is what Jesus says. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it is the sick. So go and learn what this means, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And Jesus begins to take this framing of that, that this mature version of faith is no longer carrots and sticks. This mature version of faith is Holy Spirit empowered, where righteous and holy little Christs show up exactly where we are, and we bring mercy and grace. So that was what Jesus did. Peter did something very similar um, as the gospel was expanding. Um, and Peter, right, was this good Jewish kid. He did all the right things. He said no to all the right things for his whole life. And he has this dream. And in this dream, this tablecloth comes down with all of this incredible pork products, just bacon and, um, and pulled pork sandwiches, you know, and more bacon just from heaven. You're like, this is so great. And in fact, we're going to experience that in a minute with, with Cordy's lunch, right? Just pork products on pork products. And, with, and so Peter has this envision. He's like, this is awful. This is unclean. I've never touched this stuff ever. I'm never going to because I want to honor God. I want to serve God. The gospel is for people who honor and serve God. And God's like, no, the gospel is for the whole world. And these Gentiles who you've called dogs for your whole life are my people, and I want to give them their spirit too. In fact, you're going to go to Cornelius' house, and he's going to serve you some bacon, and you're going to eat it, and you're going to see that my spirit is alive and active with these people. And this is what he says in, in Acts chapter 10. And then Peter has this epiphany. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Again, there was a version where God was clarifying what sticks, I mean, with carrots and sticks and carrots and sticks, but this new version, the gospel, Jesus came to say, no, the spirit has brought salvation. Obedience brings salvation and grace. And lastly, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That is the good news. That is what God is calling people of faith to do. And while Noah's version of it was very traumatic and crazy, all of the people in Hebrews 11 were commended because they were righteous people. Their character was lined up with God. And because they were lined up with God, they could listen to God. And then because they listened to God, they did what God asked them to do. And God's kingdom advanced. And we, 2,000 years, it's funny, we were 2,000 years since Christ came, and yet we still want to go back to the Old Testament. We want to go back to the old ways. We want giant sticks and carrots for, forever, but we are part of the new covenant. We are part of the gospel of Jesus. We are people 
who have been taught by Jesus, who have been empowered by Jesus, who have been forgiven by Jesus, so that we can be little Jesuses. And if we are going to be faithful in obedience, you know you're doing the right thing when you are bringing grace and mercy and reconciliation and salvation in whatever room you find yourself in. That is the Jesus that God has called us to be. So what, is, what are your next steps? I just want to offer just a quick little invitation here just to think about where you're at because everyone is somewhere on this, on this process of trying to figure out how to be God's people. And the very first one is, am I righteous? Am I living a holy life? And immediately you go, no, of course I'm not, of course I'm not. But the reality is we should be leaning into that. Instead of just being, of course I don't, we should be leaning in, how can I be a righteous person? Not self-righteous, but a righteous person. And if you think about it for one second, right, you immediately know a couple of things that God's like, you should probably be cutting that out. Here's a couple of things you probably might want to add in your life. Like we all immediately know, but if we're going to be God's people, we have to be people who are postured, who are living in a way that is holy and righteous. We're getting rid of all the pollution because when we get rid of all the pollution, then we can be people who listen. And so do you have a discipline in your life? Are you making space in your life to get outside the city limits, to be quiet, to listen, to listen intently, to listen longly for you to hear the voice of God or the movement of God or the nudging of God? And as you do that and God calls you into action, are you willing to obey? Because when God's people listen and obey, the kingdom of God advances. And God is longing for every Christian, for those of us in this room, for every church that's meeting in Marin and, and around the world, for everyone who is a Christ follower, God longs to use each and every one of us to bring around redemption and reconciliation and salvation for the glory of Jesus. Let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the band out. We'll pray for us and we'll, we'll wrap up our time this morning. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, I'm so thankful that we live past the time of Jesus, that we get to live with the whole story in our back pocket. And I just pray that you forgive me or forgive us for just being so quick to, to disregard the good news and for embracing the carrots and sticks version of faith. And so, God, I pray that you would grow in all of us a deeper sense, a deeper love, a deeper longing to be more and more like you. I'm thankful for the work that your son Jesus did on the cross to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And no matter what sort of chaos we bring into the room, when we confess our sin and brokenness to you, we're made immediately right in your sight. We are immediately brought back into an intimate relationship with you. And so for that, we say thank you. And I pray that you give us the wisdom and courage and strength to continue to say yes to the things you want for us and say no to the things that you don't want for us. And not so that we can be self-righteous people, but so that we can be people who can actually listen to you and hear from you and ultimately be used by you so that this broken world that is so far from you, so full of violence, so full of death and destruction and hatred and bitterness, that you would use us, your people, to be your ambassadors and that our faithful obedience would bring about mercy and restoration and reconciliation and ultimately salvation. 
And no matter where we are on this process, for all the ways that we're trying to work this out, we're thankful for your generosity, for your long-suffering, for your patience as you walk with us in this journey toward Christ. So use us in this state, use our church in this moment, so that the people of our county would encounter you in a very real and deep way. And may all the honor and glory be to your son Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen.